I want to begin with a few verses out of Psalm 63 this morning. Psalm 63 is so excellent. It's it it it, uh, it embodies, I think, the the basic mood of the normal Christian life, which we all confess we we often are falling short of. But it's got. It's got so many of the, the affections and graces of the Christian life in it. You've got the desire, strong desire, and thirsting and panting after the Lord. You've got the satisfaction in the Lord. You have assurance of His love, uh, delight in Him. There's just so much in here. And, and I say it embodies the Christian life. Uh, it embodies the life of Jonathan Edwards, who we're looking at this morning. It very well expresses his own heart pantings. Uh, as, as he might have put it himself. That's the kind of language he often uh, used. So let's read a few verses out of Psalm 63, and then we'll begin. This is a psalm of David. O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee, my flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see Thy power and Thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Because thou hast been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul follows hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as believers in you, we want to enter into the spirit even of this Old Testament saint who no doubt had your spirit and was filled with these longings and these... uh, these pinings, as it were, after you and after communion with you. We thank you for your spirit who you've caused to dwell in our hearts and help us increasingly to participate in this spirit of the Christian life, calling upon you, Abba, Father, and upon our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Attend this hour with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is week four. The next two weeks, uh, we are going to have uh, the Sunday School Hour uh, filled with missionaries. We've got David Chilton next week, who's the new home missionary. And then the week after that, on April 10th, uh, Benjamin Hopp, missionary to Haiti, will be here. So uh, we'll kind of be in abeyance for a couple of weeks, and then we'll be back here on the Great Awakening class Uh, three weeks from this morning, Lord willing, where we'll pick up precisely where we'll end up leaving off this morning on the subject of Jonathan Edwards. So, so far, uh, the first week we looked at uh, the declension that set in after the Reformation, confessional orthodoxy, but an inward uh, declension in in, uh, vital piety, as you might put it. We saw Theodore Freelinghausen come over in the, in the second week 
from the Netherlands in the year 1720, and the controversy that he had there in New Jersey, if you recall that, but then the fruit that was born through his close and searching preaching, very much in the spirit of the Puritans. Uh, that was in New Jersey, in Raritan, New Jersey. And then last week, we looked at William Tennant and his family, Scotch-Irish origin, uh, coming over the Atlantic, leaving the Anglican Church or the Church of Ireland in the Anglican communion of it, largely because of the Arminianism uh, that was creeping in to the Anglican Church. And so we kind of took a necessary diversion into the nature of Arminianism, looking at the life a little bit of of Arminius. And that actually uh, will play a large part in the coming weeks because Arminianism was something that was creeping into the churches of New England. And we'll see Jonathan Edwards later on, not this morning, dealing with that issue uh, quite centrally in the Awakening. Well, so we looked at William Tennant. He, he established the Log College. He came over in 1718 to America. By 1726, he had established the Log College in Pennsylvania, uh, just, just north of Philadelphia. And that was in 1726. And then we looked at his son, who was the first graduate of the Log College, and his early ministry in New Brunswick, uh, New Jersey, just, just to the south of... Uh, Theodore Freelinghausen. So those two became very close, and then we saw those very affecting views, if you remember, to put it in Tennant's own words, Gilbert Tennant's very affecting views, which had such a profound effect on his ministry from that point on. And uh, that's an important principle to recognize in ministers of the gospel, that that, uh, they themselves are arrested with a view of the glory of God to a greater or lesser degree. Well, we saw it in Tennant, and we're going to, we're going to see it uh, uh, almost indescribably delicious, if I can put it that way, in the life of Jonathan Edwards. Very, very, uh, an incredibly attractive Christian man for his Christian spirit. Uh, not just in the head, but in the heart. He's really in the tradition of some of the great, great uh, Christians in the history of the church. You, you think, uh, particularly in this, this relation, as I say, between the, the, the head, an exemplary intellect that could, could probe intellectually uh, into the doctrines of Scripture, search them out, uh, and at the same time, a heart that was so deeply affected and imbued with, with the desire and the satisfaction and delight that we read about in Psalm 63. So men like Augustine and Bernard of Clairvaux and Anselm of Canterbury, these are some of the old men in the history of the church that have really shaped the progress of the church. And, and Edwards certainly was out of time, as it were, uh, a man of that, this stamp and of this mold. Well, when Tennant came to New Brunswick, at the very end of 1726 into the beginning of 1727 at the very same time uh, in Northampton, Massachusetts there arrived a young man who is exactly the same age uh, as Gilbert Tennant 23 years old and that was of course who we're we're, uh, engaged with now and that is Jonathan Edwards Uh, there's a picture of him in your handout and you've probably all seen it before it's a very famous picture it's it's actually the only, only portrait of him that was was painted from life. 
Edwards was the quintessential Puritan, not, not just men of the ages, as I mentioned, Augustine and, and Anselm and so forth, but, but he really was a Puritan of Puritans, born out of time. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you see his quote in there, says this about Edwards. In Edwards, we come to the very zenith or acme of Puritanism. For in him we have what we find in all the others, but in addition, this spirit, this life, this additional vitality. Not that the others were entirely lacking in that, but it is such an outstanding characteristic in Edwards. I am tempted, perhaps foolishly, to compare the Puritans to the Alps, Luther and Calvin to the Himalayas, and Jonathan Edwards to Mount Everest. He has always seemed to me to be the man most like the Apostle Paul. Well, that's an incredible uh, commendation. Uh, but it's not it's it's uh, not unwarranted. It is not unwarranted. And if you you have spent or if you will spend any time reading uh, the life, the works, the writings of Edwards, I think I, I think uh, sooner or later you'll you'll see the wisdom of of uh, Lloyd Jones's words. Well, Edwards in this year, 1726, the very end of that year, was called to be the assistant pastor to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, in the church at Northampton in Massachusetts. Uh, His grandfather was 83 years old at this time, on the verge of uh, retirement and death, in fact. Uh, He was in, in, at this time in 1726, he was in his 57th year of continual pulpit ministry. He was born in 1643, so all the great New England Puritans were still alive at this time. Thomas Hooker and John Cotton and Thomas Shepard, all of the really great, great Puritans that came over from England. They were all still alive when Stoddard was born. He had a commanding reputation in New England. Uh, Edward says this, of him, my grandfather was a very great man of strong powers of mind, of great grace and authority. Uh, so great, in fact, Edward said that many looked upon him as a deity. In fact, they, it, it was, he was commonly known tongue-in-cheek as the Pope of New England. So great was his influence, and he was very, very beloved. Uh, quite the patriarch uh, at, at this time when Edwards came uh, to serve under him. Well, Stoddard had been called by the Northampton Congregation in 1669, way back in 1669. Uh, He was not seen as a deity of any kind then. Uh, In fact, to himself, he was was something of of uh, an undeveloped Christian, if, in fact, a Christian at all. Uh, Solomon Stoddard had had serious doubts about his own salvation, his own state of grace, when he actually came into the the, the uh, pastorate at Northampton. He had been academically fitted for the ministry at Harvard, uh, completely orthodox, but as I said, personally in doubt about his own state. He labored two full years in the Northampton pulpit. With, with this total lack of assurance. And then, quite suddenly, quite unexpectedly, as he was administering the Lord's Supper, Christ came to him in power and assurance, and it was a, it was a formative experience for him, which he was not looking for at that moment. Uh, certainly he had been seeking, seeking and reading scriptures 
meditating on them, but without this settled assurance. Well, suddenly, as I say, in the Lord's Supper it came to him. He caught, says a biographer, he caught such a full and glorious view of Christ and his great love and his redemptive work that he was almost overpowered with emotion and with difficulty went forward with the communion service. Well, that, that made a new man out of Solomon Stoddard. His ministry changed at that point. Uh, but there were two, two profound effects from this formative experience that he had. Uh, the first, a, a very, very unhappy one, he, he was disposed from this point on because of his lack of assurance uh, and then coming into this state of assurance through the means of the Lord's Supper. He was disposed from this point on to open up the Lord's Supper, to relax the, the, the fence around it, not entirely, but to some degree. Traditionally in New England, there were, there were three requirements to come to the Lord's Supper. One was an assent of the basic doctrines of Scripture, of the Christian faith, certainly. Uh, and then a life that was void of any kind of scandal or gross outward sins. This is, this is very standard qualifications for the Lord's Supper. But thirdly, and the New England Puritan churches particularly were strict on this, uh, it hadn't always been the case in the Protestant church, but the New England Puritans were committed to this, this notion of, a, of not just a credible profession of faith, but a, 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 a being able to, to communicate at some level, uh, at, a, at a basic level, a, an experience of grace, a familiarity of, of the grace of God in Christ in my life, to be able to convey that. Uh, that was a requirement. Well, this is what Stoddard began to wonder whether or not they shouldn't relax this point because he was not able himself to, to, to do this prior to this uh, formative experience of his. And so eventually uh, he convinced the church to, to uh, drop this third requirement. So now just assent and uh, a life void of, of outward scandal uh, or gross sins of any kind. Well... He said, the Lord did this for me. Why couldn't he do it for someone else in the Lord's Supper? So the Lord's Supper uh, was converted, in a sense, to a, a converting ordinance, as he called it, a converting ordinance in the church. Well, soon the policy at the Northampton Church, which was a leader among churches at that time in New England, uh, that policy was adopted by surrounding churches, and it was a policy that now began to spread, and everyone began dropping uh, the necessity to 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 relate an, an experience of grace of some kind, uh, a personal, intimate knowledge with what the Lord has done for me personally. Well, you can imagine the inevitable consequence: uh, a growth in numbers without a corresponding growth in vital Christian experience, vital piety. And, and, and that was, was probably the most salient feature of religion in the New England churches as, as we come up to this point where Edwards is becoming a young man and entering the ministry. Well, that was the first effect of Stoddard's formative experience, a very unhappy one in many, many ways. But there was a second, and that was that he had seen in, in his own experience the danger of an unconverted ministry. Whether or not he was a Christian had had been in doubt. And, and for a man to be behind the pulpit preaching and yet himself be unconverted was a very great concern, not only of his, 
uh, but of many other of his peers in the ministry. But certainly, personally, he, he, knew, uh, he, he knew the bad effects that could come from an unconverted ministry. I mean, it stands to reason, obviously. So he was determined as he reached his, his final years, he was determined to have, have a man replace him uh, who had a deep, vital experience, uh, a deeply wrought upon man. To, to follow him in the pulpit. And that's what set his sights now on first observing his grandson, Jonathan Edwards, uh, but to, to choose him to be his successor in the pulpit, his own grandson, Jonathan Edwards. So now we come to Edwards, born 1703, October 5th, eight months after Gilbert Kennett. So, so they, were, they were both very close uh, in age. And he was born in Connecticut, East Windsor, Connecticut, his father, Timothy, was a minister, so Jonathan grew up under the, the ministry of his own father in the pulpit. His mother, Esther Stoddard, was the daughter of Solomon Stoddard. Well, Timothy and Esther Edwards had 11 children, one of which was, was Edwards, and he was the only boy. There were 10 daughters, and he was right in the middle of them. I think he had like four... Timothy had four, Timothy and Esther had, had, had four daughters, I think, or maybe six, I forget which, and then Edwards, and then the rest of the daughters came after Jonathan. And uh, they were a very, very tall family. Uh, Jonathan himself was tall. All ten of his sisters were very tall, uh, approaching six, six foot tall. This is not an exaggeration, it's a, it's a historical fact. And uh, he was known, uh, Timothy Edwards, uh, his... his, his uh, the members of the church and the people in the town of Northampton used to go around saying that he had 60 feet of daughters. So, uh, anyhow, uh, as, as long as Edwards himself could remember, he had deep religious impressions as a child. He grew up uh, with strong desires after the Lord. Uh, I had a variety of concerns, he says, and this is in his personal narrative, which he wrote many years later. I had a variety of concerns and exercises about my soul from my childhood. I used to pray five times a day in secret, and it was my delight to abound in religious duties. He even says that he built a, sw- a, a, a booth in a swamp that wasn't far from his house to retire to prayer. And He used to go there with some, some young friends of his, and they would pray. But then to be alone entirely by himself, he built other little shacks and, and hideouts in the woods where he could retire to pray constantly. So this was, this was the mood of the young Jonathan Edwards. He says, I used to retire by myself to these places in the woods. I seemed to be in my element when engaged in religious duties. My affections were lively and easily moved. So this is a good snapshot of Edwards at a very, very young age. But then, significantly, very significantly, he adds this to what he just said. And I am ready to think that many are deceived with such affections and with such a kind of delight as I then had and to mistake it for grace. Well, that, that's a very telling statement. And it opens up the whole world uh, of Edwards in a sense. Uh, incredible statement. So naturally the question arises, what caused him? later on to doubt that all of these experiences that, that we've just heard from Edwards himself as a young bo- boy uh, were, were, were not true experiences of grace. What made him think that? 
Well, he, he more or less tells us one great reason, he says, that all the time running just beneath all of these affections that he was so sensible of was a secret reservation. He said, My mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased. It used to appear a horrible doctrine to me. So there's, there's the secret problem right there. Uh, if, if you recall, if you've, if you've read the, uh, the great work by Luther, Bondage of the Will, Luther makes the same confession in The Bondage of the Will. Uh, he said, Luther had said that this, this doctrine of God's sovereignty with reference to the souls of men uh, had brought him, that is Luther, down to the pit of deepest despair. He said, so that I wished, this is Luther's word, so that I wished I had never been made a man. But this was before I knew how health-giving that despair was and how close to grace. Well, last week we talked about Arminius a little bit. Arminius, too, ran into this stumbling block of the sovereignty of God. Uh, he didn't grapple his way through it as Luther did and as we'll see was, was the fruit of Edwards' own agony. Uh, Arminius essentially uh, conjured up an entire new theological system so that he could dispense that doctrine and, and explain it away out of the scriptures that seemed to be obvious to us. Uh, when I say he conjured up it, 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 it wasn't out of whole cloth. There were many before him who, who were of the same thinking. But Arminius w- was able to express it in such a way that it became so popular. Well, Edwards would have been very happy at this time for that doctrine to have been explained away. He couldn't explain it away, but there it was staring him in the face in the scriptures. Well, it was in this conflicted state of mind, delight on the, on the one hand, uh, in the things of God and in the things of religion, and on the other, uh, this, this unsettling aversion against the just liberty of God in these matters. So he was a divided man. He, had, he, he, he was split between these two things. Well, it was in this conflicted state of mind, I say, that he entered his college years. And that being the case, he was very psychologically prepared, psychologically poised to accept... Uh, the, the Arminianism was, that was then beginning to, to um, seep in to the New England colleges. Uh, Harvard had been founded in 1636, but after about a half a century, uh, it began to slip into some Arminian tendencies. So Yale then was founded in, uh, I believe, 1701 to, to correct that, to, to have a bastion, to have a place that was the Calvinistic vital piety uh, where men could come to, young men, to be trained for the ministry. But after a few decades, Yale too began to slip. And then Princeton was founded in 1746 uh, to the same end, to restore Calvinistic piety and orthodoxy to the ministry. Well, it was to Yale that Edwards came. Uh, there's a quote by Ian Murray that's very helpful at this point. He, he says about this, this Arminian kind of seepage, he says it was not so much that the descendants of the Puritans wished to sanction the distinctive tenets of Arminianism, they simply doubted whether the whole subject was worthy of continued attention. 
So it wasn't so much an outright rejection as much as these are peripheral things. We, we, do we really want to cause controversy in defending a doctrine that is so unpopular anyhow? And after all, does it really have to do with our salvation? This was kind of the mentality, uh, which is kind of a, a halfway house towards the utter rejection and denial of these great, great doctrines of the glory of God. Well, this, this was then the theological climate at Yale when Edwards entered uh, a very, very young man, uh, just under 13 years of age. He was, he was almost reaching his 13th birthday when he entered Yale in the fall of 1716. He was already, thanks to the tutelage of his father, he was proficient in Latin, in Greek, in Hebrew. He had a brilliant young mind. Uh, his genius blossomed now when he came to Yale. He was exposed to the great thinkers of the age, the age of enlightenment, so men like... Uh, Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes, Isaac Newton, obviously John Locke. These were all men who, some of them, in, in a few cases, they were actually still alive. They were reaching the end of their lives. All brilliant, original minds uh, coming, as it were, uh, to the halls of Yale to tutor a, a young, brilliant mind himself in Edwards. He certainly was a, a brilliant, certainly was an original thinker. Well, Locke, John Locke was one of his favorites. He especially gripped him. Of the works of Locke, Edward says at this time, and again, you're thinking of a, of a, a boy, basically, 13 years old, saying uh, that, that he read, he devoured the works of Locke uh, with more pleasure than the most greedy miser finds when he gathers up handfuls of silver and gold. Well... It was a great time. I mean, he flourished at Yale, except, again, for this dormant controversy that he had running underneath his religious affections. This dormant controversy with God. And uh, as he himself admitted later, supreme love in that state, he found, was impossible. He, he, again, he, he had this division in his heart, in his mind. He couldn't love. He couldn't fully rest in a God uh, that he couldn't fully approve of. He didn't approve of God's ways, Therefore, his, his love was, was stultified. His pursuit of holiness, too, he said, became a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing. So he's pursuing the things of God, striving for holiness, laying himself under repeated resolutions. But all along, he said, I sought after a miserable manner. So after a childhood that was so bright, now he's, he's reaching his mature years, uh, 14, 15, 16, he's becoming a man and he finds this controversy with God that is unsettling all of his peace. Well, more or less through all his college years, this was the case. He, he graduated valedictorian of his class, which is no surprise, uh, but all the while he was striving in this miserable manner to glorify a God he didn't really enjoy, uh, which harkens to the great question one of the Westminster Catechism. Well, in the spring of 1721, when he was 17 years old, all of this changed. And, and you, you, you have in brief a, 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 uh, how he communicates it himself in his, uh, in his personal narrative. He says, The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward, sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived in much since was on reading 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul 
and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought, that, I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. Well, here's that. that in other words, this is Psalm 63 that, that he's uh, communicating to us here. Well, the chief end of his life, it was transformed immediately, uh, not through blood and sweat and toil, uh, although he was bleeding and sweating and toiling. Uh, it was the Spirit of God coming to him in, in a way that only God himself can do. Now he was glorifying God and enjoying him. At the same time, there was a perfect symmetry and harmony between the head and the heart, if you will. The affections that he had had previously, this is what he said about them. He said, they have not arisen from any sight of the divine excellency or from any taste of the good that is in it. He, he believed it in a sense in his mind, but there was no inner experience and consent to those things of the divine excellency. And there's it's a wonderful observation here, I think, that, that we can make an application to ourselves. And that is that it, it's, it's impossible, it's humanly impossible to glorify God, uh, to have the glory of God for your end, uh, without having a sight of that glory. You, you must see something of that glory before you can have that glory for your practical end in life. I think that's an axiom that we can, we can take as self-evident. You must see something of that glory uh, until the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, as, as Paul puts it, until that arises in your heart at some sensible level, uh, you, you're really going to struggle to have the glory of God for your end in a very sanctified way at all. And, and this is what we learned from Edwards. For this sight, we're all shut up to the voice of God in Scripture. This wasn't just some ethereal feeling and vision that he was carried away with. It was linked inseparably to the voice of God in Scripture. That's, uh, that's such a crucial and an important principle, especially as we come into the Great Awakening, where there was much excess, where there was a severing from the experience, uh, from the affection, and the affections from the Word of God. Peter says this, the Apostle Peter, speaking of the voice of God in Scripture, says, To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day star arise in your heart. Listen, that, that, that's one of the greatest pieces of advice in all of Scripture. To, so I personally don't have this sense of assurance. And I say, where can I find it? Well, I can find it only by the voice of God speaking to me in the Scriptures in the words that I read in the Bible, I'm going to shut myself into this. Say, Lord, speak to me. That was Edwards' prayer, and it was answered. Well, now his, his, his heart and his mind both were full of these great things. A new kind, he says, a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. And no, he doesn't say new doctrines. And again, that's very important. Not new doctrines, but a new kind of apprehensions of them. They were the same truths that he had learned as a child. Nothing different from what he had learned, what he had heard his father preaching in the pulpit. Strict Calvinistic orthodoxy. 
But now they came with power and force and sweetness. In fact, he even likened it to the difference between two men. One, one who had, had honey described to him. So he heard it. Can you, you know, honey is it's, 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 uh, mellifluous. It's, it's, it's golden. It's, it's kind of clear. It's sticky. It's sweet. All of these things. So here's this man. He hears it, but he's never tasted it. I can tell you all about honey. And he goes, he commences, and he gives you a dissertation on the greatness and the excellency of honey. And as far as he knows, he knows what honey is all about. But he's never tasted it. That was Edwards before the first Timothy 1.17 verse came home with power. But now he tastes it. Now he knows, well, I thought I knew about it then, and in a sense I did, but I didn't know it like I know now. Now I've tasted honey. And I can tell you from experience Behind the pulpit, I'm explaining to you the honey that I've tasted. It's a very different sermon than you're going to get from the man preaching about honey that he's read the description of in a dictionary. That was the difference for Edwards. He says, I had vehement longings at this time after God and Christ, after more holiness. After more holiness. Again, I mean, we could just pause here and talk about the importance of, of, of uh the holiness and the desire for it that must attend these pious desires. Otherwise, the pious desires are empty and void. After more holiness, my heart seemed to be full and ready to break. My mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ and the beauty and the excellency of His person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in Him. Well, these are great things, but what happened to the the stumbling block in the midst of all of this. The horrible doctrine, as he called it, of God's sovereignty. Well, it, it turned from a stumbling block into matter for his greatest praise. It now not just became something he accepted, but something that he reveled in as being such a large part of the beauty and excellence and glory of God. Now, he says, this doctrine was an exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet doctrine to me. Not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. It has appeared to me as a great part of His glory. It has been sweet to me. And here's the experiential part of it. It has been sweet to me to go to God and to adore Him as a sovereign God and ask sovereign mercy of Him. You see how it's the doctrine itself is, is drawing Him irresistibly, if you will, to communion with God in that particular doctrine, in that particular uh, feature of God's personality, if you will. Well, now he was prepared to, to seek the ministry with the full vigor of all of his strength. And so he, he, he obtained his license to preach. By the next year, 1722, he was supplying a, a, a vacant pulpit in New York City, uh, a, pres- a small Presbyterian congregation who, th- that had suffered a split. He was actually pastoring the group that had broken off. Uh, it only lasted about a year because there was a reuniting of, of the, those two, the, the one congregation that had split. Uh, but at that time, he was, he was very close, not many miles away from the tenants who still had not moved to Pennsylvania. They were still in New York City. William Tennant and his family had come down. So young Edwards and a young Gilbert Tennant with his whole family were just within miles of each other, not knowing one another at all. Well, here, 
Along the Hudson in New York City, Edward says, I spent many hours walking along the banks, meditating in the scriptures. Every word, he says, seemed to touch my heart. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited in every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading. And what he means there is that he would just break down. He would break down and, and, and weep at the glory and the power of God in the scriptures. I often dwelt long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. And yet, almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonders. Well, here's a man who's primed to preach the gospel, clearly. Clearly. So he returned uh, after the church reunited, went back to work as a tutor at Yale, his alma mater, uh, for a couple of years. And uh, then towards the fall of 1726, at the same time, now we've come full circle, at the same time that Gilbert Tennant was coming to New Brunswick to begin his ministry there, at the same time Edwards received the call to come to Northampton to serve under his grandfather Solomon Stoddard. This would have been then when he arrived in February of 1727. Well, so you have Solomon Stoddard, the grandfather, and Jonathan Edwards, the grandson. Classic contrast in demeanor and in personality. Grandfather, as Edward said, uh, was of a masterly countenance and speech. He was socially gifted, robust in the pulpit, extemporaneous. Uh, Edwards was his opposite in all of these things. He was solitary, he was taciturn. Uh, Yale's rector, who knew Edwards very well before his conversion, but in some ways it doesn't really matter, he's speaking of a personality. This is what Timothy Cutler, Yale's rector, said. He was critical, subtle, and peculiar, always sober, but pretty recluse, austere, and rigid. Well, Edwards wouldn't have disagreed with that assessment of his own personality. He said as much in his diary when he was 19 in New York. He said this, I find a certain inclination which is not agreeable to Christian sweetness of temper. Too much dogmaticalness. Edwards was great with these words where you add a couple extra syllables, but it means the same thing as the shorter version. Too much dogmaticalness, too much of the egotism. Well, I, I hope we can relate to some degree to, to this kind of honesty. Too much egotism, certainly. It's what I think every Christian struggles with very consciously. Well, besides this, he had almost no powers, natural powers of speech. He had a very voice, uh, a very weak voice, rather. Again, the opposite, not just of Solomon Stoddard, but of George Whitfield, to whom we'll come, who was a human trumpet, uh, to put it in, in picture form. Edwards was the opposite of this. He really didn't have a strong voice. It'd be nice to say that his pen was his gift, because he wrote so much. Uh, but even this would be not exactly correct to say. He did write volumes and volumes, but his writing style, one, one critic puts it this way, was utterly destitute of grace and elegance, characterized by the most wearisome repetitions. Well, I, I personally uh, love the repetitions. I love them. I'm, I'm, uh, it takes me a while to get the idea. And so if someone can say it three or four or five times, say the same thing in just a slightly different way, I'm eating that up. So th this is one reason, not, not the only reason and not the prime reason, uh, but one reason why I love Edwards, because he is so repetitive. You may not like that. You may not. And that's fair. But then the same critic who was just criticizing says this. This was Edward's singular strength. He triumphs over all of these defects of his style by the simple power of thought. 
I really love that. He triumphs over them all by the simple power of thought. Uh, extraordinary thought. Sanctified thought. Sanctified thought. This was his gift. And he was resolved not, not to waste it. Uh, he wanted to exploit it for the kingdom of God as much as he could. And so he was determined to use it exhaustively for the things of God. And so once he now is situated in Northampton, uh, it, it was said by someone in his house that he commonly spent 13 hours a day in the study. 13 hours a day. But to be fair to him and his many children, he had 11 children in all, uh, the door was always open. And they were welcome any time. But there he was. If you wanted to see Dad, this is where he was in his study. Well, a few months after his ordination, uh, Edwards married Sarah Pierpont, who was the great-granddaughter of Thomas Hooker, the great Thomas Hooker. So there's a lot of pure, great Puritan lineage in both of these. Edwards says that in Sarah, he saw a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and singular purity in her affections. Well, the next year, their first daughter was born, Sarah, named after the mother. And in all, they would have eight daughters and three sons. So 11 11 children, the same in the family that he had come from, in fact, in terms of the, the, the number. Early the next year, this would be February 11th, 1729, Solomon Stoddard died. 60 years, almost, of continuous pulpit ministry. Uh, well, with, his, with his death, Edwards came into the pulpit as the sole pastor of the Northampton congregation. Uh, over a thousand communicant members in this church. It was a large church, close, closer to 1,300 probably, many of whom, for reasons we already looked at, uh, were no more than nominal Christians, making a confession, but the heart was vacant in many, many ways. Well, the next two or three years, Edward says, were a time of extraordinary dullness in religion. And uh, we'll come in three weeks, not next week or the week after, but the next week, uh, we will come to what Edwards called the surprising work of God. And that, that, that uh, something to look forward to. So, Lord willing, we'll pick this up where we left off. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. And, and especially we ask for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with us in the next hour as we hear your word expounded out of Romans. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.